This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Come in and find a seat and open up your Bibles if you have one, uh, or your devices if you have a phone or a tablet or something, computer, a desktop, whatever you got. Uh, open up to Genesis 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, 18. Now, I, I've kind of handled the first, uh, we're working our way through Genesis 1 through 11. We're going very slow through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. We're going to pick up steam in Genesis 4 uh, because that's kind of the way it's written. We, once we get to 4, we get to longer narrative passages, stories. Uh, so we've kind of been uh, moving through this section uh, a little bit slower and uh, I'm going to do that today, too. I'm going to uh, read a passage of Scripture to you, uh, verses uh, 18 through 25. Uh, and then I think I'm going to do a second message uh, on this passage as well. Uh, both, both passages will be about marriage. Uh, so I think I'm going to do a second message as well. I think the next two weeks, since we just got the groundbreaking announcement and finalized that this week, I'm shuffling a little bit. So the next two Sundays, I may do something a, a little different and then come back to Genesis 2. Uh, on Mother's Day. So uh, we're just a few weeks out from Mother's Day. So I may do that. So anyway, still, it's in flux a little bit because we just didn't know when we would uh, do the groundbreaking thing. So I wanted to talk about that before we go over there. So today we are in verses 18 through 25 of Genesis 2. I'm reading from the ESV. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see that what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living thing, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she, because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful as we walk through this passage of Scripture how you are so clearly showing us from your word your intent and your purposes for our life, your, your calling on us as image bearers. You're calling on us as those who work and keep as Adam did in the garden. And you're calling today as we look at for relationships and particularly the relationship of marriage. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us. Uh, God, I pray the result of this uh, look in the scripture would be ultimately hope uh, for every single adult in the room and hope for every married person in the room as well. Lord, we pray that you would show us hope in Christ, and uh, Lord, that you would really speak to us. Lord, I pray that over these couple of messages that you would help us, those who are married, help us in our marriages, help us to grow, help us to accurately understand what your purpose is for marriage, 
And Lord, where we've drifted, help us to be brought back to center, back to your purpose and your hand and your work in our marriage. Thank you that you are for us as couples. Thank you that you desire to work in us and through us. And so we just pray that you would uh, just grant us that kind of faith towards you and towards your word as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're single here today and you are hoping to be married, want to be married, I have a question for you. Why do you want to be married? You don't have to answer that. If you're married here today, let me ask you this. Why did you get married? And aren't you glad this isn't one of those marriage seminars where I say, write your answer down and then share with your spouse. A little pro tip, pro tip for the husbands. If you're in that context, the wise course of action at that point is to say, honey, I just defer to you. I, love, I would just like you to share your answer first and hear why we got married, why you married me. That'll save you some grief if you have a really sorry answer, just to let you know. But after today, you'll have a biblical answer, and so you'll be prepared for the future. So what is the purpose of marriage? Why did you get married? What, what is the goal of your marriage? I mean, is the purpose of marriage love? Is marriage about love and sharing love and being in love? And is, is the purpose of marriage commitment? Is the purpose of marriage to um, share life with someone so that you can build a family and have children together? Is procreation the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose? Is it to get an advantage so that you can file taxes? It was tax week, married, filing jointly so that uh, you get some benefit from marriage. What is the reason for marriage? What does the Bible say about the purpose of marriage? And if you've studied marriage or heard marriage taught or even what we've taught here, uh, I'm going to approach this a tad differently today because the go-to passage on marriage is always Ephesians 5, which I'm going to talk about more in the second part of this service. So if you're saying, in the series, so if you're saying, when are we getting to Ephesians 5? I'm going to get to it today, but develop that out later, uh, because that is a New Testament go-to passage on the purpose of marriage. But one thing we're learning in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we really begin to understand the core purpose of God when we understand how life was meant to be lived before the fall. So we talked about that last week, about work. What is the purpose of work? And we looked before the fall, and it really helped us to understand. And that is true here as well. I'm going to talk about one of the purposes of marriage. I don't think there's a single biblical purpose of marriage. I don't think we can say, here's the one reason. I think there are a number of biblical reasons, and one of them is found in this passage, and it helps us to get at it if we understand the context. Here's what's happened so far. God has created everything. He, by the word of his power, has created everything. And each day, at the conclusion of his creation, he has looked at what he's created, and he has said, it is good. In chapter 1, verse 31, this is the This is the summation of all of his creation. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So when God completes creation, he looks at everything he's created, and he says, this is very good. Then we go to chapter 2, and here's what happens. He creates Adam from the dirt, 
And he puts him in this garden. And the garden, the word uh, means paradise. It means delight or paradise. So he puts them in this enclosed area. It's kind of a temple garden we talked about last week with Adam as the priest in the garden. So we talked about that. He's doing work for the Lord, to the Lord, unto the Lord. That's what he's doing. And he's in a perfect environment. He is in a sin-free world. He is in a beautiful... It says that the garden was not just functional. It wasn't utilitarian. It just didn't produce fruit and, and uh, vegetables for Adam to eat, though it did produce that. But it was beautiful. It was beautiful to look at. So he's in this visually stimulating, perfect environment. He is eating food that is grown for him. He has the perfect job. I don't know what you think the perfect job is, but he had it because there is no sin. He, he has perfect communion with God. It's called paradise, friends. Everything is great. And so as we're reading along, when we come to chapter 2, after he's told to work in the garden, when we come to chapter 2, 18, there's a statement that is like cold water. It's like a bucket of cold water thrown in our Genesis 1 and 2 reading faces. It's like cold water to the face. 2, 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Everything is good. But it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man is to be alone. In Hebrew, there's two ways of saying not good. One is to say something's lacking or something is missing. Chips without salsa is not good. It's lacking something that is necessary. The other way to say not good is it's positively bad. And that's what he's saying here. He's not just saying there's a little something missing. He says the situation is not right. It's not good. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says this. He says, against the sevenfold refrain of, and God saw that it was good in chapter 1, the divine observation that something was not right with man's situation is startling. It alerts the reader to the importance of companionship for man. He needs a helper matching him. I love what he's saying here, and it's true. He's saying you're reading along, and all of a sudden, the the dashboard lights come on, saying something's wrong. Check engine immediately. The flashing lights go off saying, hey, be careful. Notice this. We've been saying it is good at every day. Now the text tells us it is not good. I love what Wenham says. It alert. This is an alert. It alerts the reader to what? It alerts the reader to the importance of companionship for man and for woman as well, for that matter. But companionship for man. Even in paradise, it's not good for Adam to be alone because he is created with a capacity for relationship. He is created a relational being. He's created as with a need for relationship. Back in, we get signals of this early on in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is a relational being. 
And from the, let us create God in our, man in our image. I'm sorry, edit that from the tape. That was heretical. Let us create man, not create God. Let us create man in our image, male and female. And as we go through the text of scripture, we see God as father, son, and spirit. And the triune God is relational in nature. As a matter of fact, John, uh, Jesus says in John 17 that before he tells us what was happening before God spoke the creation into being. And he says in John 17, 24, Jesus prays to the Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That before there was a creation, the Father loves the Son. And they love the Spirit. God isn't needy. He doesn't create us because there was something lacking in God. God was a totality. God was a unified uh, God in a perfectly loving relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. So he doesn't create us because he was lonely or he needed us. He, God was, is entirely sufficient in and of himself. But he creates man in his image, in his likeness. And we talked about, I've mentioned this now, I think three sermons, but we've talked about what it means to be an image bearer of God. And one of the things it means is that we uh, bear resemblance to his character, his nature, and we are relational. So really, back in 126, we get, in 127, we get the sense that, that we're created for fellowship not only with God, but with others. So God creates more than one person because we're relational. And of all the relational uh, relationships that he creates, there is one that is to be most intimate, most loving, most unifying relationship in all creation. And that is the, what he calls in verse 24, the one flesh relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman, two people created with individual separate genders that complement one another. She is complementary, which doesn't mean, hey, I have uh, great knees or something, but I was trying to say, what would you, I was going to say great shirt, but he didn't have one on, so that didn't work. <laughs> it wasn't that she was complementary, like I really like uh, something about you, but complementary in that they fit together, they complement uh, P-L-E-M-E-N-T. They complement one another. She's fitted. That's what it says. Uh, verse 18, I will make a helper fit or suitable for him. So complementary gender joined together in one flesh. That is what God does. Why does God do that? Because there is a not good situation. And the not good circumstance is that it is not good that man should be alone. Here is a, not the only, but here is a fundamental purpose of marriage. It is God's answer to the solution, God's answer or God's solution to the problem of Adam being alone. The not good condition of aloneness. So how do we state that in a positive way? The answer to the not good situation of aloneness. The one word that I can think of that I think answers that is the word companion. I got that from what I just read, the scholar who said that it is, it is startling to see that even in paradise, Adam has a need for companionship. Not a companion like buddy or pal, I don't mean that. But companion can be defined as mate or a match. 
That is one of the definitions, a mate or a match, a joining, a companionship, a suitable helper. Now, the helper speaks more of her role, and that's what I'm going to talk about in the second message, more of her role, but it still is something of the nature of how they are to relate. This, this sharing of life, this one flesh relationship, a companion to share the life calling. In 128, we see that God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. A companion, which is absolutely necessary to multiply, uh, he has to have her uh, for the two, for them to multiply, um, but also to be fruitful. A companion to subdue the earth, a companion to take dominion, a companion for spiritual fellowship with God, a companion for the calling upon life, a companion um, to, to share all that they will share in life. And if we see that, I think it begins to affect our understanding of the institution of marriage. It gives us a vision for marriage. It helps us to biblically diagnose marriage problems, which I'm going to do in a moment, based on this definition, this idea of the not alone Uh, condition and the answer to that. It shapes single adults' understanding of selecting and pursuing a spouse. It sheds light on, because this is the beginning, it sheds light on other passages of Scripture that deal with the subject. As a matter of fact, I think this sheds life on what is in view in Ephesians 5, which we'll get get to later. But this is the starting point. We start in the garden in a perfect world before the fall before redemption, before ultimate restoration. We start in a condition of paradise and say something wasn't right even there. And so he created God. Now the word, he created man. Now the word companion is not used here, but it is used in the Bible for marriage in a very telling way. In Malachi 2, verse 14, we don't have to turn there, but you could write it down. Malachi 2, 14, God is coming and he is rebuking the Israelite men because they have divorced their wives. And this is what he says to them. He says, because the Lord, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, you've been faithless to your wife who you've been married to all these years, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So there's two biblical ideas introduced here. She is your companion by covenant. Covenant is an agreement, a costly agreement agreement, a legal agreement. God makes covenant with us. It's a promise, the most sober kind of promise imaginable. And he says, you made a covenant, you made a sober promise to the companion of your youth, and now you have forsaken the companion of your youth, and that's why he is correcting them. So one way to look at marriage is to understand it as a covenant of companionship. The answer to the not alone situation. It's interesting, we're going to walk through this text as we walk through it to see how God makes Adam aware that he needs a suitable helper, that he needs a suitable helper as a companion. Because he says to him, I will make a helper fit for him, verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every feast 
of, the, of every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Man gave names to all the animals in the beginning. A long time ago, he, he names the animals. That's what Adam does. He's given the responsibility of assigning names. But the text implies that he's got his eye out for a companion. Because verse 20 says, as the whole par- animal kingdom is paraded before him for the purpose of naming, it says, uh, verse 20, he gave name to all the livestock, birds, uh, beasts of the field, but... For Adam, there was not found a helper for him. Now, God's not clueless. God's not saying, well, I hope he finds kind of one he likes or something like that. But Adam is shown certainly his need. He shows that he needs a companion. He's very well aware of his need and his need for relationship and his need for um, all that's involved in a marriage. And it's not found in the animal kingdom. He's shown his need for companionship, awareness. Husbands, today, we have a need for our awareness of companionship, our awareness of our need for help, our awareness of our need um, for support, for relationship, for help, for encouragement. Uh, We are in need and oftentimes don't realize that. But Adam doesn't find one. And so what the Lord does is that he answers that uh, by providing the wife, Eve. If God designs uh, marriage to be the solution for Adam's problem of aloneness, then what about single adults? What does that mean to those of us who are single? Well, I think it means that, generally speaking, that marriage is common, marriage is the norm, that at some point in life, Um, at some point in life, most people are married. Not all people. Uh, And not all people are married at all times because some people are single for many years and then marry later in life. So they have a period of time as an adult where they are single. Or some people are divorced and do not remarry, and so they have a period of time where they remain single having been married. Or some people... Uh, are widowed or are a widower, and so uh, they have lost their spouse to death, and some do not remarry, and so they may spend as long as a single adult as they were as a married adult. And some people never marry at all. As a matter of fact, Paul says some people are called to singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says that it is actually a gift, that God gives the gift of singleness to some people for the purpose of being able to invest their life in a less distracted, in a less encumbered way to the things of God, to the kingdom, to serving others, to helping others, to evangelism, to, um, to all that he would call them in life. So Paul says for him he, that he wishes others were like him that he was uh, called to this. So he's permanently single. So some are temporarily single waiting to be married or have already been married and their spouse died or something like that. Uh, But in all case, and then others are called to it for their lives. So what is the answer to the person who finds themselves in a single state? Does that mean that they live in a it-is-not-good state? 
No, that is not the case, because as we follow the trajectory of Scripture and as we see what happens, especially in the New Testament, the picture of the church is that for the single person, the answer to aloneness can be found obviously in friendships, but as well in relationships in the church family, where there can be care and friendship and the bearing of burdens, and the sharing of dreams, and all that happens in a relationship. There can be that kind of meaningful relationship in the church, and there can also be meaningful service, because that's what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, it's not true that single adults, they just have nothing to do. Uh, married people can think, well, we've got a lot going on. They just must have nothing to do. No, single adults are busy people as well. But by the sake, by virtue of the fact that they don't have a spouse or don't have children to give attention to and orientation of their life to, they can take that part of their life and orient it towards the people of God, the church, and serving outside the church and reaching as well. The God, God links single adults to couples and to families within the church so that there is community life and a means of friendship and companionship as well. So to be a single adult Christian is not a call to live a life that is alone. It is a call to be more available uh, in, in ways of ministry, to give oneself to ministry and other things, and to uh, be part of relational connection within a church. This is one of the benefits of, of having small groups structured the way ours are structured. We don't have small groups that are just single adult groups and just married adult groups. We just have adult groups. Now, we don't believe it's wrong to have, for instance, just a group of singles or just a group of marriage. I don't think that like the scripture forbids that or something. I don't think, it, and, and I don't know that someday we might not offer something like that. So I'm not saying that there can never be some people in the church that have that kind of small group. But I am saying this, there's a tremendous benefit to having singles and marriage together. It's a benefit for singles who are able to connect with families and build friendships, and it's a benefit to marrieds as well to serve and to care for and connect with singles and to have our children connected if you're married and have children as well. The the family connection, it, it reflects something of the family of God. The church is a household, a family, and so it's reflected in that model. So I'm not saying the other model's wrong, but I am saying this is a benefit of integrated adult groups where you have singles and marrieds together. And lastly, I want to say about this before I talk more about marriage, that someone who is not married is not only destined to be alone, that's not true, but they're also not destined to a life that lacks purpose or fulfillment or the honoring of God. Because the most purposeful, fulfilled person who honored God more than anyone who's ever lived was a single man, Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. He's the God-man. I understand there's a difference between him and us. I get that. That point's not lost on me, but I get that. But still, he is a model of a life lived for the glory of God, and he did that as a single man. And what's more, there will not be marriage in heaven. It is a temporary state that ultimately to, to glorify God in the mac- with maximum potential will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and there will not be marriage there, Jesus taught. So someone who is not married, who's waiting to be married, whose spouse has divorced them or died, is not consigned to a life of less than or aloneness. There are other means through the redemptive purposes of God in his church to care for single adults. And may we be a church 
that sees marrieds and singles in community serving, relating families together so that it's a testimony that no one needs to be alone. No one needs to leave a, lead a life alone. God has designed. And that's true for married people too. Married people don't say, well, I got me and my spouse and that's it. Married people are to be in community uh, just as well and in the same way. So may we be that kind of church. Uh, and I do want to communicate that to the uh, I'm so thankful for the single adults we have in our church that are godly examples uh, across the board, young and old. We have 18-year-old singles. No, we have 80-year-old singles. And I'm just grateful for uh, their testimony of trust in the Lord and fruitful lives that are just all over the place uh, as well. So I do want to say that even though this isn't about singlehood, this is about marriage, but I want to, that's a very important pastoral point to make and that we all understand and that we're all leaning into those truths uh, as a church. So further in the text, God creates Eve from Adam. He puts Adam to sleep, verse 21. Uh, He takes uh, one of his ribs and closes it up the place with his flesh. Uh, He kind of takes a handful of his side. It's probably, we don't know exactly what this is. It's probably not just a bone. It's it's got meat on it uh, because he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he gets some of his side is kind of what the word indicates here, rib, and takes some of his side, and he forms uh, the woman from the man. And uh, there's, a, there's an interesting Hebrew play on their, the name for woman and man. They're very similar sounding words, the word woman and man. She is from him, and he sees her. She is, she is different than he is. She is different than, uh, certainly different than the animals, so she's very like him, created as an image bearer who can communicate and relate, uh, someone with equal intelligence, and she is not like an animal. She is his peer in terms of being one who is created in the image of God with dignity and life. So she's, she's the same as him, but she's also different to him, different to him in ways that he notices and celebrates. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but this ain't me at the same time. It's interesting that the first words of a human recorded in the Bible are a poem. So here's something. I, I'm not a poet, uh, but here's something for dudes who write poems to their wives. You've got a verse on it. This, is, this started. This is how these are the first words. And in your Bible, it's probably set apart. Mine is. It's verse. Mine is set apart as a, uh, looks like a poetic um, four lines that this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So she is complementary to him in nature, both image bearers, but she's complementary physically, complementary emotionally, uh, sexually. They fit together in all those ways. Um, and they are called to be one flesh, which is not just the sexual union. It would include the sexual union, but it would include more what the sexual union represents, the joining of together of two lives, two becoming one, both maintaining distinctive personalities, distinctive gifts, uh, distinctive relationships, individual relationships with God, to be sure, but also joined together as one. They are one, become one. A new union is formed in a marriage. Something exists that did not exist before. It's consummated with the sexual union, but it is their joining of their hearts, 
their minds, their bodies, their lives together, and what he says as one flesh. The other thing we learn about it is that this relationship takes priority over other relationships because before this relationship, the, the, the um, nuclear family, the family of origin, the relationship with parents, that would be the primary relationship. But once one is married, verse 24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast the old, I think the King James Version is cleave. He shall leave and cleave. Cleave, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what he's saying is that uh, once the person is married, that the relationship with the parents changes, that the man no longer is relating in the same way to his parents, he's cleaving to his wife, and the wife is no longer relating to her parents in the same way, or her siblings, or whatever, but she is cleaving to her husband. They are joined together. So may there be no parents of married kids that are helicopter parents hovering over the married kids, no hovering in-laws. That's not what this passage is about. Parents and in-laws have a role to play in, uh, a married, in their married uh, adults' lives, but it's a very different role, and it's one that must never encroach upon the sacredness of the relationship between that husband and her wife. So he's saying by all that, it's unique. And that's why Jesus quotes this in the New Testament and said, what God has joined together, it, they have been joined together. Let no man tear that apart because God has joined this relationship together. So it speaks of the uniqueness of this companionship. It is a unique role in all relationships between this one man and this one woman. Now, I've been describing all this kind of, as I've used the illustration, kind of at a 30,000-foot level, but I'd like to uh, prepare for landing, you know, lift your tray tables up, make sure your seatbelt is buckled, because I'd like to get on the ground and see how some of this actually applies. Um, if God creates marriage uh, explicitly in Genesis 2, if God creates marriage because it's not good for the man to be alone, then why do so many marriages, so many Christian marriages, have individuals who feel like they lack meaningful companionship? If this is the goal, why do so many Christian married people feel alone, disconnected, drifting, distracted, even isolated. There, there are married couples in this room who love Jesus, and those words would describe something of their marriage. How is that? Because we just read that this is God's goal, God's purpose for marriage. Well, that's the way it is sometimes because we don't live in Genesis 2. We live in Genesis 3. We live after the fall. And once Adam and Eve sin, it not only breaks their fellowship with God, but it distorts their relationship with one another. See, prior to the fall, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Yes, they didn't have clothes on, but it means more than that. It didn't mean that they just walked through the jungle, uh, the, the garden, as nudists. That's not what's in view there. It means that there was no shame because there was no sin. There was no barrier to their fellowship, to their relationship. There was no barrier to his leading her and caring for him and her, and there was no barrier to her being his helper and supporting him. That's about roles, which I'll talk about in the next message. But there's none of that. 
There's just glorious, perfect union until chapter 3. And now that transparency, that openness, that freedom, that sin-free marriage, we can't even imagine what that's like. But now that sin has fallen in, all kinds of sinful attitudes and sinful words and sinful actions encroach and separate that union, that one flesh, that we're, we're supposed to be cleaving together in mind, in heart, in fellowship with the Lord, in body. We're supposed to be cleaving together in intimacy so that we could say we are one in life, and yet we feel there's a distortion. We feel separated at various points. And and why is that? Well, because after chapter 3, there is unforgiveness, and there is laziness, and there is jealousy, and there is fear, and there is selfishness, and there is pride, and there is bitterness, and there is lust, and there is greed. And we can go on and on with all of the things from the human heart that obstruct the glorious companionship that was, caused, that was instituted so that there would be this one flesh leaving and cleaving relationship together. That was the intent, but sin has distorted all of that. And just like last week, if I could borrow a metaphor a little out of context, but like last week we said, your job is difficult now because of the fall, and so it's not just work and keep, but it's weeding, it's thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. So in marriage, it's not just we're naked and happy in the garden with perfect transparency and relationship. There are now thorns and thistles in the marriage. And we, if we don't address the thorns and the thistles in the marriage, if we don't see them, then what is meant to be a glorious gift from God begins to feel like a burden and a trial at times. So we will never restore to Genesis 2. I don't have... Now, here's three points to get back to the perfect state of being. I, all I got for you there is you'll die, and then you'll be in perfection. So I got that for you. But I, I don't have a way to do all that. But I can say this. Jesus redeems marriages. And it starts with kind of understanding this is our goal. Now, because we're post-Genesis 3, when I talk about companionship and relationship, here is the tendency for many of us. It's to say, well, yeah, my, my spouse isn't really doing that. That's a Genesis 3 analysis of your marriage. An appropriate analysis of the marriage is, how am I being a companion to my spouse? How am I seeking, how is the Lord using me to be an aid to the bad condition of being alone? How is the Lord using me so that my spouse doesn't feel alone in life? You cannot replace God. You cannot be God to your spouse. Your spouse can't solve all your issues of loneliness. Your spouse cannot fix everything in your life because then you'd be looking to your spouse as an idol. But your spouse, you are called as a married Christian, you are called to be used by God to live in the roles that he's given you in the marriage to, to help the other in this way. So the question is, am I cultivating companionship in my marriage? Am I acting in such a way that God can use me? Am I posturing myself to be used by God by loving, caring, serving, relating with my spouse, fulfilling my calling as a husband or wife, 
so that, so that he or she feels the companionship, feels the care of God, feels the support, the love? Am I building that kind of an intimacy? Gentlemen, is your wife feeling the warmth of a companion? Ask her. And not right now. Ask her. Husbands, we are to lead, and then we'll talk about that when we talk about roles. I keep feel like I'm giving the coming attractions, but we'll talk about that. But we are to lead and take initiative and responsibility to ensure that our wives are not just getting by, not just surviving, but growing, and particularly in our relationship as a couple, growing in friendship, growing in warmth, growing in romance, growing in physical intimacy, growing in spiritual fellowship, that is sharing our relationship with the Lord together, growing in companionship. All of those fall under that category. A covenant of companionship is what God called it in Malachi. You are a companion that has covenanted together, a unique one flesh leaving and cleaving relationship. She is to feel the priority. My wife is to feel the priority for me that I have left and cleft. That I, am, that I am orienting my relational world in a priority way, not to the family I grew up in, not to the brothers who are my friends, the bros out there, the guys I'm friends with, not to other people in the church, but that I am in a primary and unique way, not exclusive, because we have relationships outside of marriage that are important, but in a unique way, I am orienting all of my life together with her so that she's feeling that sort of leaving, cleaving one flesh, that we're growing in that together. Ladies, is your husband experiencing your companionship, your loving devotion, your respect, your support, your encouragement, spiritual fellowship, physical intimacy, companionship? There are thorns and thistles that hinder all of this, and I'm going to make this really quick, uh, but I'm going to run through just a few that I think are common, that are common issues that hinder us growing together and being used by God. God is the answer for our aloneness, but being used by him to be the, in a humanly speaking, a source of companionship to our spouse. One is this, laziness. It's a thorn and a thistle. Few of us would admit to that. If I just said, we're having a ministry time. If you are guilty of what Proverbs calls slothfulness, come on down. Most of us say, oh, that's not me. I don't sit around the couch and just do nothing for days at a time. I'm not lazy. Lazy doesn't mean just to do nothing. Lazy means that I'm not orienting my life to the priorities that God has called me to. That's when I'm being lazy. I can work, and I do this at times, I can work from early morning until the evening and be a lazy person. Because what is most important perhaps that day, maybe my wife, maybe my children, maybe some aspect of my relationship with the Lord, maybe some other responsibility, has gotten sidelined in a lot of activity. And when that's the case, I'm busy, but I'm lazy. Laziness shows up for husbands when we are not seeking to be a companion. We are not pursuing companionship. It shows up in things like you know, not pursuing meaningful conversation, which is part of this one flesh intimacy, joining our lives together, our hearts, our callings. Not, not doing that. Uh, just vegging out instead. I mean, just, let's get very practical on the ground. Just watching TV instead of really interacting with our spouse. Just being on the internet, just 
opening up uh, Netflix or just reading a book or just pursuing our hobby or just getting lost in the home project that you're into, uh, whatever it is. We, We all know what that is. That's not, I've got a lot of stuff going on. That's really a thorn or thistle that's the result of the fall that is hindering me from from, from engaging in a meaningful companionship way. Maybe it's just being too lazy to schedule any time together and make it a priority. Another one I think that's common is bitterness. Bitterness, that's a sin. Is there, is there anything that you haven't forgiven your spouse for that you sort of hold over them? Ladies, are you hopeless that your husband won't change and cultivate companionship because maybe you're recognizing failures from the past or the present, and you're just sort of holding that over him? It's not, an unfor- it's not a forgiveness. It's not an extension of faith because bitterness doesn't just show up in seething anger. Bitterness shows up in despair sometimes as well, just giving up, just hopeless. Sometimes hopeless people, not always, but sometimes hopeless people are bitter people. Because we have lost faith in the Lord, we're not believing the best about another person, we're not extending grace and mercy, we're withholding. There's an unforgiveness and there's a bitterness and it colors and it's it's an impediment to being able to build this kind of companionship. Bitter people don't grow in one flesh companionship. Maybe it's other relationships Looking for what God provides in marriage elsewhere. And I'm not talking about sexually. That's adultery. I'm not talking about looking to have one's sexual uh, needs met outside of marriage. I'm talking more friendship, intimacy, fellowship. Oftentimes wives seek companionship with other ladies uh, in certain ways that they should be pursuing with their husband. I'm talking about friendship. Now, if you're a lady, you should have Girlfriends, you should have Christian, some of your friends should be Christian girlfriends. They should be friends that you bear burdens with, that you share your life with. Bible describes older women mentoring, training, discipling younger women. So it's good to have a close, intimate, meaningful relationship with an older lady. This is found in Titus 2 of the Bible. An older lady who's investing in you and helping you. And it's good to be that older lady that's investing. And maybe that's a unique and meaningful relationship. So I'm not saying ladies shouldn't have peer friends. Ladies shouldn't have discipleship relationships. That's all in the Bible. What I'm saying is that uh, you, you shouldn't have those replace the relationship with your husband that God has called him to, in a unique way, bear your burdens. He is the priority companion. God gave your husband to you so that you would not be alone, gave you to your husband so that he would not be alone. And sometimes the reason ladies look for that, that priority relationship outside of their marriage is because the husband is not cultivating that. And the wife has a desire, sees in the Bible relationships are godly, has a desire, a godly desire for it, but just doesn't pursue it in the marriage, pursues it elsewhere. And so husbands, if we aren't pursuing our wives in a relational way, seeking to cultivate this caring, supporting, relating, we tempt her to find a primary companion, not just friends, but a primary companion outside of the marriage. Another one is, I think, co-parenting. I'll make this the last one. Co-parenting. Parenting is important. I mean, look, 
in, in verse 128, God blessed them. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's have some kids, have some godly offspring, train them, teach them, send them off to leave and cleave so that they can do the same, and there is a godly heritage filling the earth. Absolutely, parenting is vital. It's important. But it is not the most important role you share. Being fruitful and multiplying together is important, but it's not the basis of your relationship. Your marriage will continue once the house is empty. And so there, sometimes I have found, in our marriage, I've found we can relate more about kind of being co-parents, where our conversations are primarily, how are the kids doing? That's happening less because i got more grown kids now. But, uh, it, you know, it, we still talk about the kids, but it's, it's different when they're grown. Uh, so it can be co-parenting together as opposed to being a co-parent is not the same as being sort of a one flesh, leaving and killing. It means that we function together, and what brings us together is discussion about our schedule with the kids or how the kids are doing. Now, parenting can be very much a part of a companionship, for sure, but if that's the primary, let me say it this way, if your primary conversation with your spouse is about the kids and not about your spouse's world, then that's not a healthy sign. If the primary conversation is about the kids and not ever about us, or not more about us than about the kids, then we may need to adjust that. So where these are some just, I mean, there's, there's thousands of things. Maybe I didn't mention yours. But there's many things that hinder. And, and God wants us to see the purpose, a purpose of our marriage it's companionship. He wants us to see, understand that, and then to begin to relate around that and to begin to build in a way in our marriage that addresses various issues like this. And where we failed to honor God in our marriage, where we have failed to pursue our spouse in a loving way, here's the good news. There is forgiveness in Christ. Everything I just mentioned that's a sin, Jesus died for that. Not only did Jesus die for that, to forgive us for that, but he rose again and poured out the Spirit to empower us to be different. And though we will never get back to Genesis 2 uh, in human relationship in a marriage, though we never get back to there, we are progressively being changed as we repent and as we trust God and as we get help from others who can help us in these ways, as we apply the Scripture by the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, we can be conformed more and more and more to the image of God, and our relationship can become more and more what it intended to be. So I don't, if you're a Christian, I, no matter what your relationship is like today, it can be far better in the days and years to come, and God will give you the grace for that. But we've got to acknowledge, first of all, am I drifting? Do I even understand why I'm married? Am I building towards what we are seeing in these verses? And here, tip my hand to the next message, here's why it's really important. Because God not only cares for your spouse and wants to use you in his or her life, and not only God not only cares for you, but God wants your marriage to actually be a reflection of his love for us. God wants your marriage to be a reflection of the gospel. God wants your companionship, and in your companionship, walking out the roles he has given you as husband and wife, he wants those to reflect a beauty and an intimacy and a, a, a 
Christ-likeness so that when people encounter our marriages as broken and as weak and as sinful as they are at points, they still are able to see the work of God, and they're able to see he loves his wife as Christ loves the church. And she relates to her husband as the church relates to Christ, respecting and submitted to him, that there is a beauty in the marriage, in the companionship, in the one flesh, in the leaving and cleaving, in the relationship. There is grace magnified and on display so that in the first place, our children get a picture of the gospel. And then our family, and then those we're around, and then a lost and dying world sees a picture of the work of the gospel through husbands that love their wives as Christ loved the church, and through wives who are respecting and submitted to their husbands in an appropriate biblical way. When that is occurring, the gospel is on display. And so just last week we said, what would it be like if everyone approached their work life as unto the Lord for the glory of God? What would happen if that happened in our city? The same is here. What if every marriage at our church, at differing places, hurting, broken, some may be threadbare, on the brink of divorce, but what if God got in there and brought restoration? And what if the marriages that are mature just said, we're not just plateauing here. We're not just saying that's good enough. We're not just coasting in until the nest is empty, but we want to grow. We want to mature. We want to develop that companionship. I want to be God's human solution, the Spirit working through me to my spouse's not good circumstances circumstance of being alone. I want to be their support. I want uh, a spiritual fellowship and emotional intimacy and friendship and companionship and fun and, uh, and, and co-laboring together in our calling to subdue the earth, to take dominion, all that God's called us to do. I'm going to do that with a loving companion as a one, in a one flesh relationship. What if that was who we were? That spreads as a testimony to the gospel. It's for the glory of God. It's for the good of your spouse. And it's also with, an, with a mission, evangelistic mission purpose attached to it. Because people see that and say, hey, what is that? What is that? And even when we mess up in sin, if we're humble and repent, then there's still a testimony. What is that? Because he failed and acknowledged it. Because she blew it and asked forgiveness. And so we start with the purpose. We go garden, we go fall, lots of thorns and thistles. I threw out four or five. We go redemption, we meet Jesus, and Jesus works in us so that our relationship reflects him through our roles, acting in a Christ-like manner through the roles he's given us in this companionship, in this one flesh relationship. That's kind of a biblical, that's how the marriage runs through the Bible, from garden to fall to redemption, and then one day Jesus will come back, and I don't understand it all, but it does say that there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage in heaven, and then we are all together as, as one people. And in the meantime, we're incorporating single adults into our lives. We're loving them. They're getting married. Um, if they, their spouse dies, we're grieving with them. We're loving them. We're comforting them. We're in community with them. So we're all together in this thing. But that's, that's the image that the Bible starts with. And can't we thank God, no matter where we are today, can't we thank God that the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. That is a picture of grace. And the Lord wants you to feel his grace today, regardless of where you are.
because you may not have what it takes to fix your marriage, to rescue your marriage, to get off plateaued from your marriage, to see straight. You may not have that. You don't have that in the flesh. But that's God's design, and His grace and mercy is available to all of us today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.